the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show, 602-508-0960. We talked about the odd stories uh, with Joe Biden contradicting his son and contradicting himself vis-a-vis his release to People magazine today about acknowledging his uh, seventh grandchild after going through laborious pains to continue to say up until today that he's only had six grandchildren. I And we talked a little bit about uh, Hunter Biden's confession in court that indeed he has taken money, he has earned money from an association with the Communist Chinese Party, CCP, Chinese Communist Party, China's Communist Party, despite Joe Biden lying in an open debate with Donald Trump that he never did. And it made me recall an interesting line from another Paul Newman movie. Yesterday, I think I was quoting from The Verdict. Did you ever see Absence of Malice, young David? No, Paul I don't Newman think I have. and Sally Field. Pretty well versed on his. Oh, is it? So it was Sally Field. So it was later in his life. It then? was in the eighties. I don't yeah, know if that's later. That's like, not later. Yeah, considering Paul Newman lived till what? Yeah, two thousand six. Yeah, just I mean, recently. Yeah, was, yeah, 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 no, it was. It was. Uh, I know what you mean, though. It wasn't. Uh, I've seen most of his films from like the sixties. Okay, we say movies around here. By the way, oh, we're not no, French. No. They're not films. They're movies. I have seen most of his films. Yeah, we don't do that, Pepe Le Pew over there. It's uh, movies around here. And we don't stay, when we go to the movie theater, we don't stay to watch the credits either. We don't sit in our chairs and watch the credits. We're not those people. We go in for the movie, hopefully it's an action or legal thriller, and we get out. I like the title sequences, though, mostly. I don't even know what that means, and I'm better for it. My point is, in absence of malice, there's this wonderful scene where Wilford Brimley is a U.S. attorney. Remember Wilford Brimley? The Quaker Oats commercial guy? And uh, he's the southerly gentleman lawyer, and he's trying to get people in the room to talk, and none of them will talk. And he mentions, my marshal over here has got subpoenas. And then he said, anyone want to talk now? And they all start talking. He goes, funny thing what a subpoena will do. Funny thing. Funny thing what uh, what uh, having to go into open court can do with someone like Hunter Biden. Byron York has a really good column on what Hunter Biden made. The government still, I'm quoting Byron now, the government still has not released the original plea agreement between the Justice Department and Hunter Biden, even though it was the subject of three hours of discussion and debate in open court this week. Fortunately, Politico has published a bootleg copy their cell phone photos of a printout of the document. Or otherwise, we would not know the lengths to which the Department of Justice went to accommodate the president's son. The major accommodation was the Department of Justice's agreement, quote, 
not to criminally prosecute Biden for any federal crimes involving his actions during the period he was not paying his taxes and for which he agreed to plead guilty to two misdemeanor charges. The the provision buried deep inside a side document offered Hunter Biden broad immunity from prosecution in perpetuity for a range of matters scrutinized by the Justice Department during its five-year investigation. Such a provision and the way it was offered was, quote, totally unprecedented, said Saul Weisenberg, a former prosecutor who worked for independent counsel Ken Starr. But there's a lot more in the plea agreement. For one thing, the document shows for the first time just how lucrative Hunter Biden's trading on his father's name was. According to the Department of Justice, Biden's total 2016 income reported to the IRS was one million five hundred and eighty thousand dollars for 2017 it was two million three hundred and seventy six thousand for 2018 it was two million one hundred and eighty seven thousand and for 2019 it was a million forty five thousand where did the money come from for two of the years the doj did not offer any details but for 2017 and 18 there is some information in the plea document From the DOJ, quote, during calendar year 2017, Biden earned substantial income, including just under one million dollars from a company he formed with the CEO of a Chinese business conglomerate. Six hundred and sixty six thousand six hundred and sixty six dollars from his domestic business interests, approximately six hundred and sixty four thousand from a Chinese infrastructure investment company. $500,000 in director's fees from a Ukrainian energy company, and $70,000 relating to a Romanian business, and $48,000 from the multinational law firm. Close quote. Who knew Hunter Biden was so business savvy or so desired for his consulting services and business acumen to earn that kind of money? Boy, you look at some of the stuff on the laptop on his laptop and you wonder how in the heck he had time to do any business whatsoever. But then you also look at that activity from the laptop and you realize it takes a lot of money to live that kind of life and spend it on those kinds of things. In 2018, the plea agreement said Biden, quote, continued to earn handsomely and spend wildly. He received a little over two. million in business and consulting fees from the company he formed with the CEO of a Chinese business conglomerate and the Ukrainian energy company. Notice that the $2.6 million is significantly more than the $2.1 million Biden reported in 2018. It's not clear from the document what accounted for the discrepancy. In any event, not that you need to know all this math, You just get the enormity of the situation here. Hunter Biden, by continuing to cash in on the connections he made when his father was a senator and then vice president, he made an awful lot of money in that time period. And even when he famously became addicted to drugs and fell further into debauchery in 2017 and 2018, the money kept coming in. The fact that he wasted it all on drugs and prostitutes is less surprising than the fact that the foreign entities kept paying him. That apparently... Is how influence peddling works. That really is a very, actually, very important point. Normally, companies don't continue to pay people whose behavior is that erratic, unless they're paying for something other than his brains and his behavior. 
unless they're paying for something other than his brains and behavior, whatever could that be? His last name, perhaps? Another thing to note in the plea agreement is that Hunter Biden's unlawful behavior, which people attribute to addiction, or some people do, continued after he reportedly was sober. After kicking his addiction to crack, Biden never wo- never woke up one morning and said, quote, I think it's time to pay my taxes. It would be the right thing to do, close quote. Instead, he was forced into it when he fathered a child with a stripper from Arkansas and faced paternity and child support litigation. Gives you a sense of how strong his sobriety is. Most serious sobriety programs do require you to, among other things, make amends and make whole those you ripped off. Who was saying the other day, Hugh Hewitt was saying the other day, that it's classic addiction behavior not to pay taxes. Classic. It's not classic recovery to not make good on that which you owe. Anyway, um, Biden got sober in May of 2019, the plea agreement says. He has remained sober since, but it wasn't until November that he engaged an accountant in California to prepare his income returns for 2017 and 2018, which he never filed. Why do it? Because, as I say, he was under court order. By that time, the DR lost the domestic relations lawsuits had progressed, and having failed to do so previously, he was under a court order to do do so. But just filing a tax return did not mean that Biden would report his finances truthfully. The plea agreement continues, quote, Biden miscategorized certain personal expenses as legitimate business expenses, resulting in a reduction in tax liability. The plea agreement did not say it, but we have learned from IRS whistleblowers that Biden falsely claimed expenses for prostitutes and a sex club as deductible business expenses. And of course, he spent a lot on prostitutes and at the sex club. Now the judge has rejected the plea agreement and given both sides a month to come up with something better. In the original agreement, it appeared to mean a lot to Biden to win perpetual immunity for anything else he might have done in his associations with shady overseas businessmen. The DOJ was ready to give it to him. Now, it's just not so clear. We'll be right back. One of my favorite things in the world is catching up with Pete Peterson. He is a mind alive. He is a mind alive in academia as well as in uh, public intellectual affairs and pursuits. He is the dean at the Pepperdine School of Public Policy. Publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu is that website. If you're looking for a career in public policy, you're not going to find a better graduate program anywhere in the world. And uh, they are based in beyond just uh, Pepperdine as well. Pete, welcome back to the show. How are you, sir? I'm great, Seth. Great to be back with you. Did I see on your Twitter feed that you were at the Hollywood Bowl recently, or am I missing? Ah, very good. Yes. I did. Yes. What Wednesday night? Wednesday night, we uh, we we kind of make an annual pilgrimage. We have a a board member of the policy school who has just incredible tickets there at the bowl, and uh, we were privileged enough to see the uh, L.A. Philharmonic uh-huh. uh, play Rhapsody in Blue. Oh, so yeah? It was a very, very American night with some Gershwin and just really uh, just a, a wonderful night under the stars. Uh-oh. All Buffalo. right. Now you're singing my uh, producer's song. He loves that kind of stuff, too. That's oh, what, yeah. What's the best concert you ever saw at the Hollywood Bowl? 
Oh, that's a good question. Um, I'd have to say that even this one, especially uh, Gershwin and the pianist they had, uh, who was the soloist, was was really remarkable. That's um, good to hear. And I, the, the tweet I sent out actually was remarking on the conductor uh, that we had for the evening. Last name is Shankin. Uh-huh. And uh, he noted the fact that um, when he was, you know, uh, introducing the piece, this was right at the beginning of the performance, that he had grown up in Southern California, and in fact, very close to the Hollywood Bowl and had applied to be an usher there at the Hollywood Bowl at age 16, um, but was turned down. And here he was back as a conductor. No kidding. Uh, I, just, I just thought that was just a I great American like story. Oh, it is a know? great American story. It's not, and it's then n- we went right into Gershwin. So it's it nice to really know this is still the place where dreams can come true. Exactly right. You know? Exactly. He went from being turned down as usher to conducting the L.A. Bill. I, I want to do a show yeah. on that someday. People who got turned down for their jobs only to be vindicated yeah. or... You know, by by something even better. But that is actually a pretty good story. Uh, you know, yep. that to give to students. You know, you're going to face some. Oh, yeah. You'll you'll face some declines and negativity in life, but they're not and never should be considered permanent. You never know what something better might be in store for you, huh? Yeah, the response is in your hands. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's right. That's a great yeah. lesson, Pete. Yeah. Um, Rhapsody in Blue, Gershwin, you know, these kinds of great cultural pursuits. It's great to know they're still going on. It's great to know they're still going on in Los Angeles. I was fascinated, as I always am, by the work of the Institute for Family Studies at uh, University of Virginia. And they they had an interesting study. We've been talking around the edges of it on this show, and you and I have talked about it before. The, um, The study has to do with um, social media and smartphones, and not kids this time, but adults right. and marriage. Brad Wilcox yeah. was pointing out some of this stuff. It's a big problem for adults. It's a big problem for our marriage, for the institution of marriage, and really the marriage crisis. Yeah, you know, when it's, it's I guess, can be easy to focus on children, as you say, and certainly teenagers, and we're, we've talked about uh, the the many studies. In fact, I just came out of a a leadership retreat, um, our annual leadership retreat for Pepperdine University, uh, just this afternoon. And sure enough, we were going over some of the figures regarding um, the issues with uh, teens and young adults and social media. But the place where um, Wilcox went in the study was really to. <laughs> to cite a, a, a common fact that sometimes we forget is that there are only 24 hours in a day. Yeah. And how we decide to spend those 24 hours um, is entirely up to us. And those decisions that we make about uh, social media usage, uh, which are almost inherently um, distracting, mm-hmm. and at the same time, they're rarely... Uh, done with someone where you're communicating face-to-face. Yeah. I guess that, that can happen. You can communicate with those you know through yeah. social media and social yeah. so forth. But by and large, social media interaction is both uh, distracting, distracting and anonymous. And we have people around us that you know are friends and family 
that we can decide whether to spend our time with them or spend our time uh, on social media. And the effect now that, as you say, is being now seen with adults is really reflective of just the very simple fact that how we spend our time, either with people face-to-face or uh, in the online world, um, can really determine a broader quality of life. And as we've again talked many times, that ability to speak and engage with those face-to-face, those who we know in, in building and deepening relationships is really such an important part of uh, broader happiness for human beings that if we're taking that time that we have and committing it someplace else, in this case on social media, then those relationships, and by that, uh, the relationships are failing, and by that, we are also uh, depriving ourselves. You know, you make an interesting point about there are only so many hours in the day. It's not only going to ruin those relations. It's going to ruin a lot of social science Um, in this respect, Pete. You know, we've seen studies that what it means even for something that I guess once upon a time would have been considered simple and routine. But it means a lot in families that just gather around the dinner table together, that just have dinner together. You see lower crime rates, lower drug usage rates, all that kind of thing. Weirdly enough, just having dinner together does that. It it, it doesn't mean having dinner together with everyone on their cell phones. Um, And as Brad was pointing out in this study, one therapist says, cell cell phones have caused more upheaval than anything I've seen in my career. We've normalized them being intrusive and taking precedence Precedence, sorry, when people being intrusive and taking precedence when people are lying in bed, gathering around dinner table, playing Wordle or scrolling scrolling through TikTok rather than talking with one another. I mean, it is it's going to ruin the entire enterprise of that which we always thought was a force of composition in 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 social matters. Right. And obviously, when we think about distractions, sometimes the maybe unsaid thing, is that it's easy then to wonder if the thing that's happening on the cell phone is more important than the person. Yes, that's, that's the right implication. Right? That it, Yes, that's exactly right. what the implication is. Let me take a quick break, if I can, with you, Pete, and pick yep. up on some of, some of this and some other interesting social science that's come out that I think the audience would love to hear us uh, talk about. Pete Peterson is my guest. He is the dean of the Pepperdine School of Public Policy. You can follow him on Twitter as well, at Pete4CA. He and I will be right back. Pete Peterson is my guest. He's the dean at the Pepperdine School of Public Policy, one of my favorite public intellectuals and one of my favorite uh, institutions of higher education. Uh, Pete, one more thought on this study um, that came out from the Institute for Family Studies at UVA, More Scrolling, More Marital Problems, the title of it. You put your finger on, on it right before we were going to break when couples – and I don't suppose they have to be married, uh, but this was mostly a study on marriage. There could be other 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 kinds of relationships. When couples um, are spending more time, more of the otherwise dedicated family time, dinner time, you name it, 
when they're spending that time on their on their smartphones, the implicated message is that what I'm doing and seeing others do, even people I don't even know, my gosh, maybe they're even animals, you know, playing tricks or whatever, mm-hmm. that's more important than my time with you. You know, it reminded me of something that was said by Albert Schweitzer like probably 90 years ago. He said famously um, – we're all so much together, but we're all dying of loneliness. You know, you can be with people yeah. and still be lonely, even yeah. with a device in your hand, the first word of which is social. It's an odd irony of our time. It really is. You know, it reminds me of uh, the book on the subject uh, from Sherry Turkle, who's that researcher we talked uh-huh. about at uh-huh. MIT. Uh-huh. The title of her book was Alone Together. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. Um, that that phenomenon that you described of, yeah, being even physically in the same room, yeah. but being completely disconnected from one another and connected to uh, the Internet, social media, so forth, um, is a real challenge and obviously very difficult uh, and, as we're learning, very harmful uh, for personal, interpersonal relationships. Have we all become infantilized, Pete? Have adults? I made a point the other day that adults need to grow up, and that's an odd sentence, you know? Adults need to grow up. Have we become so infantilized? I, I ask that in light of what these scholars write as, uh, as you know, suggested remedies, suggested solutions to this problem of more scrolling, more marital problems. And the first one is marriage and premarriage excuse me, marriage and pre-marriage counselors should strongly urge couples to establish rules about the use of smartphones. Have we gone to the point where we need academics to explain that and, and counselors, therapists to be explaining that to married and pre-married couples? I guess we have. I, I, guess, we, I guess we have. Yeah. yeah, I mean, we were just, again, I, some of this is just coming straight from this uh, leadership meeting. I, I'm not speaking out of school, no pun intended, to yeah. say that even some of the discussions that we're, we're reading in management and leadership books are about making sure that you're disconnecting from social media as a way of, you know, making time to think more theoretically and about vision for your organization and um, certain tasks and so forth. They require you disconnecting from distractions. And certainly email in the corporate environment can be one of those things. I'm sure you and I both you know, we have we spend more than a little bit of time each day just responding to different things. Sure. But again, with only limited time in the day, how much money, how much time we're spending scrolling through social media, um, and then just the the distraction that that presents itself. I mean, the mood changes yep. that go on yep. in scrolling through. Yep. You know that phrase "doom scrolling," right? Where it's a way of describing really just increasing depression that sets in as you're going through uh, various social media scrolls. And if you're not, maybe uh, you're comparing yourself to those that you're seeing online, whether it's like, say, an Instagram, Mm -hmm. uh, or you're just going through just bad news story after bad news story. uh, It's not just the distraction piece, but what it does to your broader outlook and emotions and so forth, um, we really have to be very careful about that. I I often warn about just what takes place with cable television and the frenzy Mm -hmm. they seem to put, that that seems to put us in. Everything everything has us in a frenetic state, which is an 
unnatural psychological state. The, there's a crisis industrial complex, I think, that we've Very talked good. about. And, and, and now we add this element. I haven't even thought of it in context of this element. I mean, if we thought Fox, CNN, and everything they're doing to us all the time and the New York Times and all that and, you know, the blaring stories, everything's a crisis, the end of the world is coming, walls closing in and collapsing – if that wasn't enough, we now have this, and it's called, what's the phrase of art? Doom scrolling? Is that it? Doom? Yeah, doom scrolling. Doom scrolling. Yeah. This was yeah. a uh, short segment. Let me do a longer one with you if you have time, Pete, on the other side of this break. I want to talk to you about something, um, well, it's not your neck of the woods, but it's a little closer to your neck of the woods than mine, something that Oakland NAACP just confessed mm-hmm. publicly. Can we talk about uh, crime in California Absolutely. when we come right back? Yeah. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Pete Peterson is my guest. He is the dean at the Pepperdine School of public policy, one of the most active uh, Twitter feeds, Pete4CA. Pete, the number four, CA. He and I will be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. I am Seth Liebson, delighted to be joined by Pete Peterson. He is the dean at the Pepperdine School of Public Policy one of the greatest uh, public policy institutions in the country, but it is the best school in the country if you are interested in a career in public policy. When we talk about the problems in higher ed, uh, they're the solution. They are a great solution. And they teach the kinds of things that um, you get to know before you experience the tragedies of life and the tragedies of poor public policy. Pete, I, um, I raise that point because, you know, for years criminologists and other scholars like Heather MacDonald have been warning about what the defund the police movement would lead to. And, of course, as uh, as we all know, you get called a racist, you get called other bi- terms of bigotry. Steve Hay- Hayward at Powerline did this tremendous, uh, got this tremendous find of a statement that the Oakland, California chapter of the NAACP has pretty much now completely vindicated the kinds of theses that Heather MacDonald and others have been saying, including making statements that um, other minorities should stop allowing themselves to be shamed into silence about crime. They say it is not racist or unkind to want to be safe from crime and that the defund the police movement has led to more murder and to others committing life-threatening serious crimes. And the, pro- and the proliferation of anti-police rhetoric, they say, have created a heyday for Oakland criminals. I, I, it's, it's a hell of a get-out-of-jail-free uh, get, get card for going into these debates in the future. It's just kind of sad it took so long to have to be admitted, huh? It is. And, of course, you know, it would, be, it would also be... Um, at least uh, almost a, a, a laughing matter if the implications of that ideology were not so deeply felt, particularly in black neighborhoods and, and uh, communities of color uh, more broadly. Oakland, in particular, right. is really seeing, uh, continuing to see dramatic increases in crime. Yes. Uh, uh, robberies up almost 10%, um, violent crime up almost 10%. And again, these are on top of uh, years where we've seen seen increases, certainly through uh, the COVID pandemic as well. So um, it really is worth respect 
to uh, giving respect to the NAACP chapter of Oakland um, to really step out and um, speak truth to power. Yeah. And the power yeah. in this case is this uh, agglomeration of organizations that are ostensibly saying that they're speaking for uh, communities of color, mm-hmm. um, but in ways that have really had such damaging results to these same communities. And I hope this is just the beginning, because, um, again, whether it's Oakland or across the Bay in San Francisco, or it's down here in Los Angeles or further down in San Diego, uh, each of the major cities just in California are experiencing uh, the damaging effects of ideology around the subject of of public safety. I, I mentioned Steve Hayward brought this up at Powerline. Did I see recently that he's uh, he's going to be with Pepperdine? He is. Yeah, it's great to have him back. Speaking of that area um, up in Northern California, he had been teaching at Cal Berkeley yeah. uh, for the past six or seven years um, and delighted. Uh, we made the, the announcement a couple of months ago that he's going to return as a a visiting faculty member Wonderful. Uh, with us, actually going to be doing a an event with us even before classes start here in a few weeks. Oh, so, great. great. Yeah, great. great to have Steve back. Oh, yeah, he's such a cheerful conservative and so smart on such a broad array of issues, too. It's it's yeah. really, it's really like, like you, he's a mind of life. The NAACP Oakland chef, it makes me ask a question. Are, are, are any of these cities that have suffered such depredation and Oakland's got to be at the at the top of the list of 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 of, of you know a failure. Are they recoverable? Yeah. Can they can they recover? It's not. It, it seems like it's worse than New York in the eighties. Yeah, you know the the phrase that they're using. We mentioned the the term doom scrolling yeah. in the last segment. Yeah. This is uh, now being called the doom loop in cities like San Francisco and Oakland, yeah. uh, in which when really in large part due to COVID, these downtown areas that were so dependent on commercial real estate and rents and people coming into the office as a way of uh, providing economic uh, growth and sustenance of downtown areas. Once people stopped coming into the office, uh, then people stopped coming into downtown areas. And when that began to happen, you started to see reduction in revenues for all the businesses that depended on those daytime populations. And one thing leads to another. Uh, and in with people leaving uh, and services being reduced, and then the ideological component of this defund the police movement already in place, uh, we've, we've just, I think, logically seen the result in these quality of life and serious crime issues going through the ceiling in a lot of these in a lot of these cities and i think it's i think it's definitely a code red situation in san francisco they're really um uh, proposing some real radical ideas around converting numbers of office buildings into residential Mm -hmm. properties as a way of bringing people back into downtown areas but if you've gotten into this doom loop deeply enough where the downtown areas have essentially been taken over uh, by 
a criminal element, and we're seeing other quality of life issues really damaged over the course of the last few years, then why are people going to move right. into that right. area yeah. uh, to live, much less come in to work? So it's a real quandary that cities specifically uh, we're seeing here in California, uh, where we've seen such an out-migration uh, more people left the San Francisco Bay Area in the last two years as a percentage of the population than any other metropolitan area in the country, uh, again, in the last two years. So when that begins to happen, you start to see these other quality of life issues really come to the fore. And it becomes, again, that that cycle where you you can do everything you can to change zoning and bring see if you can get more people to live in a city versus working in it. But if those quality of life issues are really in a bad way, uh, it becomes a tough place to attract uh, individuals and families to come. Well, we're going to need, sad to say, I guess, a Marshall Plan for the United States. That's that's the point mm. we've come to. At least for some of our cities, yeah, there's yeah, no yeah. doubt about it. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe that's a course or a lecture. <laughs> a Marshall yeah. Plan for our U.S. <laughs> Pete Peterson, love catching up with you. Have a great weekend, sir. You too, Seth. Thank you. Pete Peterson from the Pepperdine School of Public Policy. Publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. We'll be right back. You think of the bank failures and the stock market's volatility and talk of recession and certainly actual kinetic inflation. Where do you go to invest? You go to Y-Refi. They have a portfolio with a high fixed rate of return not correlated to the Federal Reserve or the stock market. It's a portfolio where you'll know what each monthly statement will look like with no surprises. You can turn your monthly income on or off. You can compound it, whatever you like. No loss of principal if you need your money back at any time. Think of that freedom. There are no fees in this secure collateralized portfolio from Y-Refi, and they, um, they're based here locally. They encourage you to stop by their offices. They're on Scottsdale Road in the 101. I've been, and I can tell you, you won't get a sales pitch, and no one's going to ask you to sign anything. But when you meet with the team at Y-Refi, you'll see why I trust and like them so much, and you can too. Y-Refi is a due diligence-approved firm where you can earn up to a 10.25% fixed rate of return, 10.25% fixed rate of return. Check them out at investyrefi.com. That's invest, the letter Y, then R-E-F-Y.com, or call them at 888-Y-REFI-34, 888-Y-REFI-34. I guess if you missed my lesson on civil society manners and donuts on Wednesday. You can get it at our website, 960thepatriot.com. Just go to my show. We have all the audio. I think we even isolated that lesson. Yeah, you bet you we did. <laughs> and we're getting quite a little bit of um, feedback feedback on it uh, on Twitter. Uh, one of our dear, And in the office. <laughs> and in the office, yes. One of our listeners, Mark, writes... Uh, Seth Liebson and David Dahl, interesting segment with David Schweikert on obesity and health care, but then followed by your diatribe on least favorite donuts. It wasn't a diatribe on least favorite donuts, by the way. I me- that was an ancillary to the debate. The least favorite donut was ancillary to the larger point of manners and behavior and maintaining the ordinary resolutions of civil society. He went on to say maple donuts least favorite? No. Cake donuts, sans frosting, is nothing more than fried dough, pig fat fried dough. 
I'll take a maple any time if you're offering. He's not right. As I put it back to him, you can drink a glass of milk, chocolate, or regular with or after the plain cake donut. You can even dip it. Try it with maple, and it just doesn't work. The maple oobleck is a hermetic seal against any relief. Do you know where oobleck comes from? No, I don't. What is that? Theodore Geisel, better known as Dr. Seuss. Bartholomew and the Ublick. Great child's book that I hope they haven't banned yet. (laughs) Mark wrote back in his repost. He wrote, I won't insult your intelligence by suggesting that you really believe what you just said. One of my favorite William Buckley retorts. So he, having done that, I will give him the last word. I can't top that. Props to him for doing that. Maybe Invoking Buckley it, against me, you just know, you can put doesn't. polls on Twitter. Maybe you should put like Team Maple or Team No Maple polls or something. You know, <laughs> I I just know I'm right. I don't need a poll. Oh, you don't yeah. poll self-evident truths. All right, <laughs> we'll be right back. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never before seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com salemnow.com